You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Gail Shanks. She's the buyer and co-owner of the Changing Hands bookstore in Tempe, Arizona. Thank you for joining me, Gail. Thank you for having me, Rick. Gail, tell me a little bit about your history as a bookseller. When did you decide to become a bookseller and why? Well, I have an odd, quirky history as a bookseller. I um, was an English major, and in 1972 and three and four worked with some friends at an alternative school for children. And when the kids would leave, we would sit on the front part porch of the little school and talk about what we wanted to really do when we grew up. And one of the fantasies that we had was to start a bookstore and have a place that people could come and gather and talk about politics and the environment. And um, we were all really interested in the Whole Earth Catalog and Coevolution Quarterly and some of the books that were promoted kind of in alternative communities. And we thought it would be really cool to have a bookstore that carried those kinds of books, which did not exist in Tempe um, in those days. And so one of those people, uh, my first partner, Tom Broderson, and I at some point decided to open the store. There was a little used bookstore in downtown Tempe that was for sale. And Tom was downtown one day and asked the guy what he wanted for it, and he said, if someone walks in here tomorrow with a check for $500, I would sell them the whole store, including the cash register, the shelves, and all the books. Wow, that's amazing. I know. So Tom went home and asked his father if he could borrow $500, and his father wrote him a blank check for $500, and Tom went to this guy and said, were you very serious, truly serious about wanting to get out of this business, and the man said, yes, I was, and Tom filled in his name, and he then owned a bookstore. Um, Unfortunately, that store needed to be packed up and moved because it was in a building that was about to be renovated um, in our downtown, and so on. Now, what year was this? This was 1973. Okay. Because we opened our store in 1974 on April Fool's Day. (laughs) intentionally on April Fool's Day because we felt like we were we were being very foolish and had no business no really no business experience at all either one of us and um but we we got a lot of business experience over the years and that store um when we opened it was 500 square feet and a very tiny store and within about a year, we had outgrown that space. And within three years, we had moved to a larger space in the redevelopment, which was where the original bookstore that we bought um, was originally contained. And in, I guess it was in 1978, we moved into our second location, which was a whopping 1700 and. 50 square feet, which we thought was going to be, you know, three times as much space, and it was going to be wonderful. Now, what year was this? That was 1978. 78, okay. 
so we we expanded and moved in 78 and we remained in that location until 2000 we did expand several times we um, started taking over the spaces to the north south and west of us um, <laughs> and ultimately had just over 5,000 square feet in that space Wow. So when you started this bookstore back in 74, mm-hmm. were, did you actually get to carry the Whole Earth catalog and some of the other things you wanted to carry? We did. We were mostly a used bookstore. The books that Tom originally bought were all used books. And when we opened, we decided we were going to have one case of new books. And we ordered all of our books from a collectively owned wholesaler in the Bay Area called Book People. Oh, we know them. They're... You know Book People. <laughs> yes, I think I've spoken with them, actually. You probably, they're gone now, but um, they were collectively run. And in fact, Michael Tucker, who owns Books, Inc., which is a little chain of bookstores in California, used to work for them. Mm-hmm. So he and I always laugh when we see each other. He's on my um, ABA board and about his days at Book People when they used to play volleyball at lunch, and they had caterers come in and make them lunch every day. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a really cool place, and we would go there a couple times a year. year we would fly to um, the Bay Area and go to Berkeley and go with a shopping cart and pick out books for our store. That's how we got books, new books in our store in the early days. And... Um, we did. We ordered every new book that we carried was referenced in, in the Holers catalog. Really? <laughs> in those early days. That's, we didn't know about publishers' catalogs. We, we really didn't know anything about the book business, and we didn't really understand exactly how you ordered. So we found book people. There was another wholesaler in um, Denver called Racer Gwine. It then turned into Gordon's. And um, it was it was an independent wholesaler, and we bought from them and book people forever until, you know, we sort of grew up and realized that we could get accounts with publishers, and we started buying directly from publishers and through the major wholesalers, through Baker and Taylor and Ingram. Well, tell me uh, uh, about the changes in your bookstore from the the beginnings in 1974 when it sounds like it was very much an alternative I guess you, back then it would have been called a hippie bookstore, was it? <laughs> it was a hippie bookstore. Um, there's no doubt about it. We were all hippies. We were Birkenstocks and, you know, definitely felt like we needed to create an alternative world. Um, we were all political activists and environmental activists, and that was really the market that we were looking to serve. Um, in those days, there were several really good independent bookstores in the Phoenix area, and they were more general bookstores, and what we were trying to be was a used and alternative bookstore. Very shortly um, after we opened, there was another store not very far from the campus and just about three blocks from us that was going out of business, and it really was the Tempe General Bookstore. And when that happened... We were into our new location, and we realized that we really needed to be a more general bookstore. And so that was kind of the beginnings when we opened that second store on, um, you know, across the street from where we started. We realized that we needed to have new books in 
many categories, not just in alternative categories. So we started carrying new fiction and kind of edgy fiction. Um, you know, I think one of the first books we had was, you know, The Catcher in the Rye, and um, we carried Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Wow, I remember that you remember one. That? <laughs> Absolutely. I had a ratty paperback of that yeah. somewhere out in the garage, I'm sure. Right. And so we were carrying kind of new writers, Tom Robbins, and, um, you know, I, I, it's hard to recall exactly what. I know Carlos Castaneda was always a bestseller when his new book would come out. That would top our bestseller list all the time. How about Kurt Vonnegut? Kurt Vonnegut did really well. We have carried for 35 years now. We've carried Kurt Vonnegut in the store. There's never been a moment when we haven't had his books in the store. J.D. Salinger, Franny and Zoe, and Ray's High the Roof Beams Carpenter. We've we've always carried those books. Um, but we we did really expand our horizons and and we we evolved into a more general bookstore. Tell me a little bit about your history ordering books. I'm taking it uh, that since you're the maven in charge of ordering now, you have been for this whole time. Could you talk about maybe how, as you, I have to say this, grew up, Uh uh, how your taste changed and how that influenced the way you ran the business and ordered the books? Well, I think the the thing that I realized from the very beginning was that I had to pay attention to what my customers were asking for. And I grew as a buyer by working on the floor in the store and listening to the books that were requested day in and day out that we weren't carrying. And I would then ask the customer, well, what is that? Or who is that author? Or what kind of books does she write? Or, you know, and I I would realize, oh, you know, this is the second request for a book like that. You know, maybe I should look into ordering it. We, um, I think in 1977, maybe or 1978, we finally bit the bullet and bought books in print. We were getting them from another store in town. When they got their new ones, we would get their old ones. And so (laughs) at least I had access to authors and all the books that were available by those authors, even though it was maybe a year old. Um, I also started getting microfiche from um, Ingram and Baker and Taylor, and so our microfiche readers were prominently displayed in the store because that was a way that I could find out about new books. And they, Ingram, from very early on, would have um, you know brand new books that were just coming out listed on one of the microfiches, and I would just look at them and say, oh, I bet I could sell that, I bet I could sell that. We had a very archaic um, non-computerized inventory system. Everything was on a 3 by 5 index card. Wow. So as I would decide on a new book, I would write the title and the author and the ISBN number and the publisher on that card, and they were in essentially in chew boxes for years. I mean, from 1974 until 1988, when we got a computerized inventory system, I had my entire database in the store on 3 by 5 cards, and I... We would collect information at the cash register for each book that was sold on a little business card slip of paper, which I would then sort by hand into publisher piles or into the wholesaler pile, and and that's how I reordered. So I, you know, we we definitely, you know, I I definitely learned from my customers. I, you know, I did a lot of research. I 
you know, I would go to a lot of other bookstores and see what kinds of books they were carrying. And I I just really learned by the seat of my pants how to order books in for the store. I just knew there were certain authors, you know, that you just absolutely had to have. And some sold and some didn't. We were able to sell Hemingway but not Faulkner for some reason in those early days. And even though I thought any good bookstore worth its salt should have both, um, you know, I, I just would put in classics. I, I put in books that I had read as an English major. Um, you know, we carried uh, the other specialty that we had was um, spirituality. We carried a lot of Eastern religion, Buddhist books, metaphysical books that just couldn't find anywhere. Alan Watts. Alan Watts. I mean, Alan Watts was, and again, Alan Watts is someone that we've carried for nearly 35 years now. So, you know, Chogum, Chogum Trungpa, um, Ram Dass, um, Be Here Now is another book that we've had since, you know, probably 1974. Uh, we've, you know, we've, we've always carried the latest and most interesting spiritual teacher. We still have a very, very large section of spirituality books. We carry books on tarot and palm reading and, you know, just a lot of things that you just couldn't find in a mainstream bookstore. And for a long time, those were really our bread and butter. In the early days, we sold a lot of Native American spirituality. And again, you know, Native Americans were revered for their culture and their and their spiritual practices. And for a really long time, the Native American books were one of the best-selling sections in the store. And over the years, I've seen that change now, and it's no longer a big section for us, but you know, it's just been curious to kind of follow those trends. Well, I'd like you to talk to me about the evolution of changing hands as a you know, a part of the community because, uh, uh, I mean, when you're starting out in 74 and you're the hippie bookstore, mm-hmm. you're, you're definitely drawing a certain clientele who isn't just there to buy books. Right. There, you know, there were, we didn't have very many customers in the early days. I was, I do weaving and I would bring my little, you know, loom into the, into the store. And when I didn't have any customers or any books to order, or books to trade in, because we started with used books, and we were constantly buying and trading books from, from the community. So that was a big part of what we did, was, was trade books in, price them, shelf them. But when that was done, I would do my little tapestry loom. Uh, but what would happen is, is that the store became a gathering place for people to talk about ideas. And we would have meetings in the store. Um, we had meetings of local Buddhist groups. We'd have meetings of environmental groups. We had meetings of progressive politics. Um, you know, really, we had a table and chairs, and often we had more people talking than we did have them buying books. But uh, it really um, endeared us to the community. We were right across the street from the food co-op, and so we had a very nice synergy between the food co-op and our store. There were two or three natural foods restaurants in our neighborhood, and we carried, you know, we started carrying a lot of vegetarian and, you know, the Moosewood Cookbook was one of our best-selling cookbooks. Um, and we, you know, we realized early on that a bookstore really was a gathering place for people to think and talk about books. And we knew that books changed lives. And that has kind of been our 
our operating um, motto for for years is that when you get people together and it's surrounding books, it really makes a huge difference in their life. Gail, uh, you've been running this bookstore since 74, and I'm wondering if you could talk about the history of events at your bookstore. How long have you been doing events, and how much of, has that played into you know, the growth of your bookstore? You know, in the early days, Rick, the events were a very tiny part of what we did. Um, we had events for local authors. We had um, events for the ASU faculty who had books out, and we always had um, kind of a launch for a poetry book or a novel by one of the um, faculty in the creative writing department or in the English department at ASU. There was a, a, let's see, what was it called, Hayden's Ferry. It was kind of a literary journal, and once a year they would put out a new edition, and every time they did that, we would have a big event, and that was a huge event in our in our store because it usually would get 75 or 100 people. Um, beyond that, we had Barbara Kingsolver for her first two books Wow! in the store. Now, was um, she no a... one knew about her then. Oh, really? And I had read Bean Trees and just absolutely fell in love with it and was selling it to everybody that came through the door. And she lived in Tucson, and she came up, and then she came up, I think, um, for Animal Dreams as well. And so occasionally we would have an author, but it wasn't really what we did. And then as we moved into the late 80s and 90s, events started taking on a much larger role in the store. And um, the problem with that store um, before I moved to our new store was that we didn't really have enough room to do the events there, and quite often, if we couldn't do them in the back in the little gazebo, it would really mean that we essentially had to close the entire store. And that often made our customers, as many of them mad as the ones who were coming to the event, were happy. But, you know, we had huge events. We had at Abbey two or three times in the store. Um, you know, we we did it anyway, if it was a big enough author, but... When we decided in 1998 to open a new store in the suburbs, a much larger store, um, part of the consideration was that we would design it so that we would have more room for events. So we went from having probably four events a month in the 90s to having nearly an event every single day in the store now. We have over 350 events in the store in a year. 350 events in the store in a year? Sometimes we have one in the daytime and another one in the nighttime. And our store is now completely dependent on our events to bring in new customers, to, um, you know, just sort of enhance what we're doing, provide that experience that people are looking for in the store. So we have a lot of authorless events as well as events that have, you know, a known author or a local author. We just had an event in the store on Saturday that was called Oh Yuck, and it was based on a workman children's book about all the yucky things there are in the world. But we had crafts and all kinds of things for kids to do, and there was not an author. We just put it together, and we had about 80 children here. 
for that event. And it's still hotter than hell in Arizona, so people come out. You know, it was a really big event. The store was really packed. So, you know, we we have we have a huge marketing department. I have a full-time marketing director. I have a full-time PR person. I've got two part-time people. We do a email newsletter. We send out blasts about our our events nearly every day of the year. Our customers get something from changing hands. So it's big. Could you tell me, uh, one of the big changes um, in book selling over the years has been the uh, rise of Internet book selling. How has that helped and or hurt you? Well, Amazon is killing us, um, if that's what you mean by Internet book selling. You know, we're, I think that's our biggest competitor now. Even though Changing Hands is surrounded by 32 or 33 chain stores, physical locations, um, and we're the last remaining general independent store in the city, we've we've you know figured out how to deal with that kind of competition. We just you know we just sell books better, and we're doing just fine. But when it comes to Amazon and people buying online, you know we just haven't countered that you know, that tendency of our customers, even our loyal customers, to just click on and think that they're going to get the book faster by clicking than they would be from ordering it through our website. So that's that's a huge issue for us and other stores across the country. And Amazon has definitely taken a chunk out of our uh, out of our bodies as far as, you know, as our as our book selling is concerned. Could you talk, do you have a, a, a strategy in mind? Are you working on a strategy to, to counter the, this perception that Amazon can get stuff faster? Because that's an interesting notion. I mean, it, it if you could uh, click on, you know, Changing Hands Bookstore and have it, you know, walk there the next day to get it, I think a lot of people would, would do that. Right, and we're trying our best. You know, we have customer service training modules for our staff that, you know, are really talking to that exact issue. If someone's walking away from the desk, you know, the information desk saying, well, I think I'll just go home and get it on Amazon, you know, the staff is, has been schooled to say to them, you know, I can get it for you just as quickly as you can get it on Amazon. And if they resist saying, no, Amazon gets it to us, you know, gets it to me in two days, we say to them, you know, if we put the order in right now, we can get it to you in two days. It can be in the store in two days. And if they complain further or they say, well, I don't live here, I think it's just easier for me to get it online, we often will um, agree to pay the freight. So that's our latest thing. I haven't done it long enough that I know how it's going to work yet, but I did hear one staff person yesterday saying, you know, we'll ship that to you free freight if you just go ahead and order it through us. Because what we're trying to do is change the perception that Amazon is easy and changing hands is hard. And it's just as easy to click on our website as it is to click on Amazon, and they can get the book just as quickly. But it's all about perception, and we're just trying to change that. And a lot of this has to do, too, with customer service. And you talked about uh, modules. This is an interesting term to train your customer service people. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about training the people who work for you and and the importance of having a quality staff? Well, I think it's the difference between staying in business and not being in business because one of the things that we tell the staff when we're interviewing them is that books are exactly the same. You know, you, you can walk in and buy a Barbara Kingsolver book in our store, and it's the exact same book you can walk in and get at a, at a Barnes & Noble. But if our staff knows that her last book 
was <clears throat> about buying and eating locally, um, you know, in your community. It's not a novel. It's, you know, a book that she wrote with her family. I mean, if they have that information and they can share that with a customer, that's an extremely different experience than if you walked into a Barnes & Noble and somebody had never even heard of Barbara Kingsolver and they'd have to go to the computer and look it up and say, oh, yeah, I think that might be in the fiction. Let's see if we can find it there. So, you know, it's imperative that we hire staff who read books, for instance. It's imperative that we hire staff who are smart and who've gone to college. And if they haven't graduated from college, that they're in college because, you know, we're just finding that it, it takes more than just a clerk. You, you know, you, you can have a clerk if you work in a, in a dress store or in a shoe store, but I don't think you can have a clerk when you work in a bookstore. And so we're constantly sending our staff to the Winter Institute that the ABA has to regional trade shows. We bring as many as we can to BEA every year because it's not about the books that they're going to see so much as it is the interaction that they're going to have with other book professionals. And my sense is that the more that I can get them passionate about the book business, the better business people they will be and they will understand that you know, the bottom line is, is teeny-weeny in a bookstore and they've got to work really hard to grow that bottom line. And so, we're, you know, we talk to them a lot about profits. We talk to them about, you know, what the discounts are that we get from publishers and the wholesalers. We talk about you know, how important it is that every customer that comes in is treated well and walks out, you know, with something in their hands that they paid for at the cash register. You know, we have a module that talks to them about shoplifting and how important it is to greet people and look them in the eye so that they don't steal things from us. And, you know, it just goes on and on. But we're very matter-of-fact about it. We have something called a passport, and, you know, there's certain key areas in customer service and in training that, they have to they have to go through and learn and the floor manager who's their trainer has to sign off before we let them on the store floor by themselves and cuz we just we don't want people giving wrong information it happens but we try our best not to let it happen you know the this whole procedure and, and this administrative uh, process you described sounds like something out of the chain stores and i'm wondering if you had to develop this in response to having so many chain stores in your area, and maybe you could talk about you versus the chain stores. Um, no, I don't think the cha- the training came from that. Our our training manual actually came from this um, group out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, called um, Zingerman's Deli, and they have a program called Zing Train, and I did some training with them, and some of my managers did some training with them, and that's where you know, where that's coming from. They they just feel like customer service is the end and the end all of, of being able to stay in business. In terms of the chains, you know, we just have to sell books better. That's all there is to it. We just have to be smarter and we have to have more interesting displays in the store and, you know, we we have to have the authors. I mean, it's turning out that most of the publishers are sending. It used to be I had to fight. They would send them to a Barnes & Noble instead of to changing hands. But we do books so well here and events so well here that we really we, we get nearly all the events. And if you talk to managers at the chain stores, you know, they, they tell us that their major competition is, is our store. So we feel, you know, really good about that. You know, we know that 
we figured out how to do it. Many of our events, you have to buy a book, and sometimes it even comes with a ticket that you have to pay for because if we have to have an off-site venue that costs us money, we have now started charging people $5 to help cover the costs of the off-site venue. And we're finding that people are willing to pay because, you know, where can you go for entertainment for $5? Or, you know, you can... Yeah, it's just we're just teaching our customers that that's the cost of doing business. And if we're going to stay in business, then they have to help us by helping us defray the costs so that their community bookstore is still here next year. So we do a lot of talking about that. We're very involved with the new ABA program, IndieBound, and Local First. We, One of my um, partners here <coughs> was actually one of the people who um, started Local First, Arizona, and I think that is going to be the wave of the future people educating the community to support their local independent businesses is making a huge difference. You know, wherever it's going on all over the country, it's making a huge difference. And I, you know, I think, I mean, that's the business we're in is to teach people that their dollars help their community more if they stay in our community and go through our store than if they spend them at a big box, a Barnes and Noble or a Borders. And we have that conversation on the floor nearly every day, you know, every single day, maybe 10 times a day, some days. This is really interesting because uh, the way you're talking, and I've not heard it put exactly this way before, you engage your customers in, in, in a partnership to, you know, that you're partners in this, carrying this business of yours forward. Absolutely. I mean, I just gave a talk to a group last Tuesday of um, Arizona Publishers, and, you know, I said to them, do you know how lucky you are to have a bookstore like Changing Hands in your community? No, they're only really 15 or 1,600 really it, strong independent stores left in this country. And, you know, that isn't very many cities. And if you happen to be in one of those cities where you have a bookstore, I just think people are extremely, extremely lucky. And, you know, that's not to, you know, inflate my own ego, but I just think that, you know, bookstores change and support communities, and they need to have the community supporting them as well. And if they don't have the community supporting them, then they're not going to be there. And I just don't think twice about sharing that information with people. I really don't. And I just feel like, you know, people don't understand, well, you think you're going to get a bargain by buying this book for $15 at Costco instead of buying it for $25 for me, but that means the next time you want something that's not on those Costco tables, you're not going to have a bookstore in your community that's going to have it. What are you going to do then? You know, you're going to be forced to go online to Amazon, and if you go online to Amazon, you know, what storytelling, you know, story time are you going to take your kids to? You know, Amazon doesn't do story time for kids. Nor do they host events in no. your hometown. <laughs> exactly. So... You know, I I just talk about that all the time. And, you know, I talk about it very gently but very forcefully because I think people don't think about those things. And I say to them, you know, don't don't lament when Changing Hands isn't here anymore. That, oh, you wish, you wish, you wish that you had supported us more. Just support us now because I can just guarantee that if you don't support us, we're not going to be here. They're like, oh, my God, I never knew, you know. Yeah, I said, yeah, it's a very precarious existence these independent stores in this country are. I think it's important. I think it's important for booksellers to talk about it. 
Could you talk about uh, the ABA and the part they play in your business? Well, you know, being the president of the ABA. You are? <laughs> I am. Oh, well, congratulations. Um, thanks. Um, you know, I I know the importance. I wouldn't I wouldn't have spent a lot of time and energy doing this if I didn't think that a trade association like the American Booksellers Association is like one of the best things we have going. And you know, the ABA does the things that we can't afford to do. They put together, you should probably go on and look at the IndieBound.org um, website because it's a brand new program that's just being rolled out all over the country by booksellers all over the country. And basically what it is, Rick, is it's uniting a bookstore with the other independent retailers in their community. It's helping bookstores who don't have local first organizations in their communities to start them because we found that those communities that do have local first, where people in their community are being educated every day about the importance of buying locally, those are the bookstores that are the strongest, the healthiest, and probably going to be around for a while. And those stores that don't have local first or really don't understand the importance of local commitment and local community, they're not, they're not doing that well. So we decided as a board about two years ago that we were going to try to figure out a way to um, get the Booksellers Association to be the foundation that's going to create some kind of program. And at BEA, just last May, this past May, we rolled out this new program, and it's starting to have legs. And I think it's really important. And, you know, beyond that, the Trade Association has credit card services for its members. It has um, a gift card so that stores can sell those plastic gift cards, um, you know, and compete with all the other stores that have gift cards. We have a um, shipping in and out program because books are really heavy and we're allowed to do returns in this business. So, you know, we have to send a lot of books back. That's expensive. So the ABA has negotiated lower terms with FedEx. Um, we have an insurance program. I mean, it's the cheapest insurance in, in, in the world for businesses to buy through Libris, which is a subsidiary of the American Booksellers Association. And when bookstores buy their, their insurance through that, not health insurance, this is just, you know, liability and, and, um, on their, on their books in their store, um, it's very cheap insurance. So that's, that's been very helpful too. I mean, I could probably go on for, for seven hours, but you, that's probably enough. Uh, thank you very much. Uh-huh. I've been speaking with Gail Shanks. She's the buyer and co-owner of Changing Hands Bookstores and the president of the American Booksellers Association. Thank you for joining me, Gail. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you for doing this. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.